It's 1950, and are we saying goodbye, superheroes? Eh, the Korean War starts with the so-called Atomic Age, and tastes are changing, folks. Estes Kefaver starts investigating comic companies to see if there's a link to juvenile delinquency. There is. Just kidding. As superheroes generally fade into the woodwork, they're being replaced with other genres. In comics, well, they reduce their page counts. I'm Bill Field. And this is the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm here with my ever-vigilant co-host, Alex Grand. Alex! Howdy, everybody. And again, our special guest host, it's Petey, the Pete man, Peter Coogan. Pete, how are you, man? Hey, Billy, I'm fine. And you're not looking like the guy from Unbreakable anymore. But if you're not privy to our video, you don't know what I mean. Oh, now you look kind of Victor Von Doomish. Okay. Well, guys, <laughs> how, how the heck have you been in the last two weeks? Alex, go. Well, good. I'm still kind of coping with Dan Lee dying. It's an interesting thing because his voice from the Amazing Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends cartoon is what got me into wanting to read comics back in, what, 1983 or so. I read He-Man mini-comics before that, but something about his voice on that show and his voice and other things got me into it. And, you know, looking into Stan and Jack Kirby and all that, a lot of impressions change the more you know about it, but that's still original magic, him and his excitement and me getting into comics based off that. I think we all kind of knew it was going to happen, and it was correct that it happened. He was 95. He lived a long life. But, you know, the world doesn't have him in it anymore. And that is something that I think we're all kind of feeling in our own way. Yeah, it's funny. The day it happened, I hadn't heard because I'd just been, as I frequently am working, I get in, start working with students. So somebody comes and says, oh, you must feel sad, I said. And they explained Stanley and I was, oh, that's too bad. And then I got there's a publication we have at the university, Washington University in St. Louis, called The Record. And Anytime something happens in the news and they have an expert on campus, they try to get that person to comment for it. So they asked me to write up a couple paragraphs, which I did, and I thought it would be tough, and then it turned out to be easy. I had met Stan the first time over the phone. When I was a grad student, I was writing a paper on teenage superheroes in the 1960s, American Studies class in the 1960s, and he took my phone call. That's great. And did an interview and gave me some real insights into what he was doing with Peter Parker. And then he contributed an essay to a book I co-edited, and I got to ask him a question at Wizard World St. Louis a couple years ago. And so, you know, I had a connection to him, and I was able to pull from that. I was happy with a little piece that I wrote. So I know a lot of people wrote those little pieces on that day on Facebook and so forth. And I think that it's interesting the way he did kind of become almost a mascot for comics that doesn't exist except for him, except maybe Scott McCloud, but that's in a different way. Yeah, I think that'd be more like in an independent, like almost a higher brow way. For the medium rather than for yeah. the company. I, right. I was on a first name basis with Stan. He called me Hey Kid. <laughs> and that was in that bathroom you met him in when you were a kid? <laughs> no, no, not the bathroom. Damn it, Alex. I was 14. I met Stan. and. He couldn't have been more of a gentleman. My uncle programmed me from a young age to believe that Submariner was pronounced Submariner. Submariner, yeah. yeah. Incidentally, the thing pronounces it the Submariner. Yes. So. Well, and I told that to Stan, and Stan immediately told me, where did people get that shit from? Come on! Come on, it's Submariner. Everybody knows that. And then I told him afterwards that my uncle said that. And uh, he said, well, you know, your uncle probably was right. You know, so Stan was a good guy. He did not want to leave things in a bad light. And he was the voice of Marvel Comics. And I love the guy. I also know what angst he gave to Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko amidst other co-creators. But I miss the guy. 
the world is a lot sadder now than it was with Stan in it. Right. Yeah, he did bring smiles. There's pros and cons. He was at Mascot, and it was about bringing comics awareness to people. And I think people, because mainstream oversimplifies things, they bottleneck it into comics are superheroes, and Stan Lee created all of that. Yeah, right. And so it gets bottlenecked into like the only genre of comics are superheroes, and Stan Lee created all those superheroes. And so it mistranslates, but looking beyond that into his contribution to things and just bringing awareness about comics to the mainstream, even if it was oversimplified, I miss that. I miss that force. I have a hard time believing that we'll have someone quite like that again. I think with that, I will miss him. Yeah, with that, it's because, you know, everything's more spread out. Nobody will have that opportunity. You know, even at Marvel, they only had eight titles. And so he was able to kind of oversee all of them. And I I wrote about him being a contradiction because he was, you know, he was this glory hog in some ways. But he also started the putting credits in Marvel Comics, you know, maybe so he could put his own name up. Right. But I wouldn't have known Joe Sinat. I wouldn't have known any of those other people without those credits there. He was, you know, a huge success, right? You know, he helped shape American culture, where we are with movies right now, that, that comes out of, you know, the work he and Jack and Steve Dicko did in the 1960s. And yet, he was also a business failure. All the stuff he tried to do on his own, Stanley's POW and, and just other things, none of that stuff worked out for him. He was a great collaborator. On the other hand, he was kind of a shitty partner. Right. So he was this strange set of contradictions. He he was self-aggrandizing and self-deprecating at the St. Louis uh, Wizard World. You know, the question I asked him was about Odd John. Odd John is a novel from 1935 by Olaf Stapledon featuring a balding telepathic mutant who gathers young mutants to him to protect them from a world that hates and fears them. It's the novel where Homo Superior first appears. It's very much like the X-Men. And then there's another novel called Children of the Atom about children of atomic plant workers who have this strange advanced intelligence. And they gather together in a school and they're opposed as freaks by Billy Sunday, this religious leader, or Billy Monday, religious leader, but they attend kind of an academy for gifted youngsters. And the world ends up hating and fearing them. So I asked him about those, and he said he had never heard of them. He didn't remember that he had ever read them or that he didn't know anything if Jack had read them. And then two minutes later, somebody asked him a question about the X-Men. He said, didn't you hear that last guy? I stole all of it. So he could go from one to the yeah. other. So it's like, easily. which one is? Yeah. That's right. I have to say, that was a part of Stan that was amazing, because he did not have any problem whatsoever with giving credit to people where credit's due. Yet, everyone says he steals all the credit. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Right. and I, But I think it's that gray area where then people think he's getting the benefits of one, but then also then deflecting the responsibility of the harm it may cause someone else by then writing the other part of that gray area. And so, I don't know, again, it, it, that gets really difficult. And some people have a hard time processing that as a benign thing. I don't know. It is what it is. All right, well, we could talk about Stan all day. He had a huge impact on all of us, but let's make him proud and proceed. So let's talk about DC Comics in 1950. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of things about 1950 today. Jack Leibowitz was dominating DC. He was in the vice role to Donenfeld. However, he was controlling most of the details of the company. Harry Donenfeld, who was head of the company, was delegated more to the background. And Jack Leibowitz's taste toward clean, conservative comics guided a lot of the comics. Something interesting about this time is something called the Slick New York Style. And you guys may know about this, but it's associated with Dan Barry who in 1950 was at National. He had a real clean penciling and inks that left an impression, and they call it the slick New York style. He left later in 1951 to do Flash Gordon newspaper strips, but there was a feeling around the company that this clean, slick New York style should pervade the comics, and Jack Leibowitz was noted to be a fan of that, and the editors 
were known to be a fan of that. And that clean conservative line marked the DC house look for the 1950s and the 60s until people like Neil Adams came in and kind of changed things up. Interestingly enough, Whitney Ellsworth, who was the main editorial director, he started working more on movie serials. And so he's giving his editors more independence. And the fiefdoms start. So with this clean New York line and these fiefdoms start beginning, you have Superman and Superboy and all the Superman properties guided by Mort Weisinger. Okay, that fiefdom is basically starting to set pretty strongly into stone. Wonder Woman under Robert Kaniger, Batman under Jack Schiff, and who's overseeing guys like Dick Sprang and things like that. And these fiefdoms start, and the clean New York line starts pervading the comics. What's your guys' impression of comics at this time under Weisinger, Kaniger, and Schiff? It was pretty much the smiling bat and the smiling Superman, and you didn't get much more than that. You had some offbeat sci-fi stories. You had the congealing of uh, Superman's origin story from Krypton and what that became. And you had the beginnings of things such as the uh, Bizarro World. And it was a pretty fantastic time for Superman and Batman, actually, as far as their origins and as far as their traditions go. Sure. And probably more along that kid-friendly route. Oh, yeah. Right, where... By far. You know, you don't have Superman being so violent. You don't have Batman being as dark and mysterious, right? It's more of a kid-friendly... You get some of that silly stuff, right? That starts happening in the 50s, like that zebra, zebra Batman. And the stuff that they downplayed that they didn't really get into on the Batman animated series of the 90s, but that they really went pretty hardcore on the Brave and the Bold cartoon, right? Where it was like that. Oh, absolutely. Right, right. They used every weird costume they possibly could in Brave and the Bold. Yeah, in a way, it's silly. You have to, hats off to that. In the 1950s, because the shift away from superheroes in the end of the 40s, you get things like The Adventures of Bob Hope, right? right? Where right. And it's the Ozzy and Harriet comic stops, that there's that attempt to find their way. It's sort of like they're a little bit lost. I, I think your point about the, the art style is true, that it, it kind of smoothed over all of that. And that's what you can sort of think of it as, that they're attempting to, I don't know, almost settle things down and get things on a nice kind of even keel. Yeah, that's right. And it is basically that house look that DC just became known for. Interesting little bit of trivia. Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman, massively proliferative writer, he would actually switch between editors. He wouldn't just do stories for Jack Schiff. He did stuff for Weisinger as well. And who did he create for Superman in 1950? Oh, wow. I did not know that. Lana Lang, actually. Lana Lang was actually created by uh, Bill Finger in 1950, which actually, um, when you think of just Lana Lang's character as an accessory female character, kind of passive and to be saved in the Superboy world, it kind of makes sense that it would be 1950 when she would be created, right? Because it wasn't really a strong female time. It wasn't really a time for strong female roles, but to have an accessory role in 19... It makes sense for Lana Lang to be made in this era. They were probably trying to come up with like a Lois Lane version of for Superboy, right? Because they have the same two L's in the beginning. Yeah, or a Veronica to uh, a Betty, perhaps. I'm just Although saying. that would have to be through time travel. No, no, no. They were from 1941 on. No, no. I, I meant that to have Lana Lang and Lois Lane operate at the same time. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. So, but you're right. I think there's that kind of a dynamic, which, you know, later later came up when they started to interact a little bit more with each other. But yeah, I can see that. Now, Pete, you were mentioning the other genres, because like Bill was mentioning, for superheroes, although there were some books, the majority of DC Comics was not focused on superheroes. Uh, they started going into the other genres, like humor, like you mentioned, but they were also getting into westerns. So you have All-American Comics, then changed over to All-American Western. So Green Lantern gets replaces a star character to Johnny Thunder, the cowboy. You have crime and romance comics. Archie knockoffs, there was one called A Date with Judy, Secret Hearts, which was kind of a romance comic, which is huge in 1950, the romance glut. But you know what was real key? Julius Schwartz uh, started Strange Adventures number one in 1950. And what I think was significant about that 
is that he's starting to bring his, or maybe he did already before, but he's bringing his pulp sci-fi experience, right? He was a pulp writer. All, all these guys were pulp writers, but he brings that sci-fi experience um, into his Strange Adventures comic. And what I think is significant about 1951 is getting into other genres, get into sci-fi comics, because EC Comics is doing sci-fi, but also that that sci-fi becomes kind of a little seed or a saving grace that revitalizes Silver Age six years later, because they had they used sci-fi pretty massively throughout the Silver Age to kind of jumpstart comics and get superheroes back into the game. So I think 1950 is interesting in that sci-fi is that little kernel that they needed later. And I would like to credit Julia Schwartz with that. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because Strange Adventures starts out with an adaptation of Destination Moon. And you have, like I said, Bob Hope, and you have Alan Ladd comics. That There's an attempt there which had existed from the from the earliest days, you know, with the with the Superman comic strip and the Superman cartoons. There's always been that sense in which, and the radio show, comics tried to play kind of back and forth with other media. And so I think that's one of those things that, that was driving them at that time. They wanted to broach out of just the straight comics into as many other things as they could. You know, you know different levels of success, but... Um, I think Strange Adventures is a, is an aspect of that. So now, as far as uh, science fiction, you know, another company was working on science fiction, and that was EC Comics. So EC Comics, you know, Bill Gaines, of course, he, he got the company from his dad, Max, who helped start the comic book industry. And by 1949, they were kind of playing around with some comics that weren't really doing so well. So in 1950, they start a new trend with Al Feldstein. And you have... You know, new science fiction comics. You have Weird Science 13 in 1950. But you also have some other genres going on. Essentially, not really superhero at all. Gunfighter 14 turns into Haunt of Fear 15. The first crime suspense stories come, comes on. Vault of Horror, Crypt of Terror, before it was called Tales from the Crypt. And we talked about those comics in more detail about the genres in our 1953 episodes. But 1950 is kind of a seminal year because... That's where Bill Gaines decides, let's try something different, and let's go completely non-superhero, and let's just go into these genres that people seem to be interested in these days, because readership was just older and maybe a little more sophisticated. Pete, what do you think about this branching out into other genres? Why did it, you know, just from a popular psychology level, why did these other genres do so well in 1950? Why did superheroes start to wane? Why, why were these other genres so popular in 1950? Well, superheroes had their main impetus coming out of World War II. And and right after World War II, a lot of superhero stuff dropped off anyway. And so by the 1950s, that had kind of run out, and there was movement into other things, the larger sense of the atomic age, the space age, moving to science fiction. I think for EC Comics, though, what science fiction allowed them to do that in many ways they did with horror and some other things is they could tell really pointed stories that enabled them to talk about deeper themes, but under the cover of science fiction. I think at least from a creator perspective, science fiction offered them a broader canvas to paint on because as genre fiction, they wouldn't be paid as much attention to, and they could slip in more of their ideas. And think about EC Comics, if you ever spend the time to read the captions there's a lot of stuff in there. They really, really want you to get the point. Um, and when I teach it, uh, my students sometimes have a hard time working their way through the captions, but I always try to point them to it. And, and we look at the way they're really, really trying to tell you what they want to say. Uh, but you can also just read it with just the pictures. But there's so many of those stories in EC science fiction comics where people get their comeuppance they don't learn their lesson. It's about the kind of foolishness of humanity. And when they do their more serious things, I think that that approach carries through. And so that's what I think science fiction kind of meant to the creators. As for the audiences, you know, it was it was all over the place. And these things come in waves, I think, primarily because genre always offers, genre is a myth medium that offers people a way to understand their world. So in the 1950s, with Westerns, you know, that reflected the geopolitics, the way in some ways superheroes do now. And anytime there's a, 
like an issue, major issues in the culture that they're dealing with. It always gets expressed through genre. And so, you know, with the coming of the atomic bomb and the space race, those sort of tensions coming out of people's lives, through, they could experience them and kind of explore through science fiction what would happen. And in EC, a lot of bad stuff happened <laughs> in the comics. Right, that's right. You know, something that I've kind of wondered, and Bill, tell me what, what you think, is I think when the war started, World War II started, people, there's like a younger, almost escapism and, and emulating hero role that, that the war played in. Whereas now you have these soldiers that are older, they're married, more domestic, and it's not like there's that many special effects or interesting TV or movies that you could just get a lot of content really fast. And it seemed like adults probably needed content to consume. And it seemed like multiple genres and almost a slightly more adult level of storytelling may have provided that for people. This is where the uh, horror uh, genre kind of bloomed because people have seen such atrocities in World War II, that they were used to almost anything. So when you threw something at them that was a monster or something that was like an open human being or, or whatever it might be, they could buy it because they had seen that in war. Right, that's a good point. And so a yeah. lot of these things were just lighting the fire to the things they were already feeling inside. And I think something interesting about 1950 and something about EC, what I like about them, especially with Johnny Craig stories, but I guess kind of all around, is there's almost like this shiny 1950s beginning to all these stories. And then it gets ugly toward the end. And oh, really quick. Yeah, yeah. Like with, you know, the seven page story and by page three, you know. You know, things are Oh, yeah. Stuff goes wrong. Something's bad. And I think what's interesting is that uh, that might be their fun commentary that, yeah, things might look good on the surface, but there's something dark brewing underneath. I like that concept, and um, uh, I feel like it's fun to read those. And, you know, just looking at some of the artists, you know, you have, you know, Wally Wood, actually, him and Harry Harrison kind of helped jumpstart science fiction over at EC. Um, do you, are you guys familiar with Wally Wood and Harry Harrison at this time? Yeah, I sure am. Yeah. And, the funny thing is, is it it echoes what was going on in the communities uh, in in the United States at the time. I think their intrinsic uh, paranoia, their uh, conspiracy kind of feeling, right? It translates into what was happening at the time with with the Red Scare and everything else. Yeah, what's interesting about uh, EC? is they have a kind of constant thing. This is more in their, not in, like so much in their science fiction, but it's the way in which so often the characters who you think are supposed to be the approved of characters turn out to be bad. The right. detective father. Right. There's a great one where um, a reporter goes down to investigate the clan and he gets attacked, ends up in a hospital. They say, you know, did you see his face? And he says, you know, they've got the FBI men there. Did you see his face, the, the Grand Wizard? He says, yes, I can identify him. And then they all pull out guns and shoot him because they're all on the side of the clan. <laughs> and that's what EC could do repeatedly with, with all of its stories, but including with its science fiction, where they could show you what was wrong with the world. There's a great one about Washington, George Washington, and it just shows American troops to be, you know, the revolutionary troops, they're not heroic. He's whipping them to get them back to fight. Right. He's losing, you know, they get their heads blown off. They're running away. They're cowards. That's what EC was able to do that kind of nobody else was doing. That's where Mad Magazine came from, that kind of disruption. And so it, to some degree that was born in that science fiction because it gave them the freedom to play a lot and explore in ways that maybe could be a little under the radar. Something I do like, though, about Johnny Craig, I know I've mentioned him before a few times, but he had that smooth New York line like DC had. Oh, yeah. But then, but then there was like that kind of ugliness 
that would show like, oh, this really nice looking lady, turns out she killed her husband a few minutes ago. And now she's trying to hide the body, but all in that smooth New York line. And I just find that that's just so funny because that's just so different than what Leibowitz and, you know, National or DC Comics and Superboy and, you know, Dick Sprang. It's so different than the content that those guys were making, but still in a similar smooth 1950s kind of sort of line. And then, I mean, I'm sure Graham Engels, you know, maybe even some of Jack Davis's gruesome stuff. I bet that looked like an abomination to people like Leibowitz and the editors at DC. They weren't the intrinsic artists and illustrators that they were used to because they were willing to push the parameters right. and make things more ghoulish. Yeah, right. As it were. And that was the the wave of comics at that time. No, that's true. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, and it's that, I think, that contradiction it kind of makes me think of you know there's a couple songs like you know pumped up kicks this is just a meta uh, an analogy where on the surface it's kind of this happy tune but it's a story of this kid shooting other kids he goes to school with. oh really is that what that's about oh yeah that's oh. What pumped up kicks is you better run huh. better run outrun my gun Oh, yeah, it's, it's okay and and there's uh amigo the devil does a very similar thing it's a there's this nice love story but it turns out it's a stalker and so i think you see that a lot of times in ec comics what you're talking about that line especially craig um where it looks really nice on the surface but in some ways that makes the kind of psychological horror aspect of it have a greater effect because it does look kind of so normal right that's right yeah, which I found that even as a kid, I was in seventh grade when I read, read my first DC comic, but I felt that way. I thought, ooh, this is, it starts clean, but then it gets gross. And I remember as a kid, I felt like, I actually kind of snuck it into class and I'd read it in the middle of class and it was a, kind of a naughty feeling. It's kind of, uh, do you ever get those, Bill? Those naughty feelings? Oh yeah, well, especially with Joe Orlando. Yeah, I'm gonna wheel this back into comics. Thank you, Alex. But but <laughs> but no. Joe Orlando and the black cat story where the cat the kitten accidentally gets killed by a rock and then the cat comes back and uh kills the guy in an Iron Maiden. A wonderful story. Heartfelt. And Pete, I can tell you you see the heartfeltness in what I'm saying. You know, speaking of going into different genres, what was Marvel doing at this time, or Atlas, or Timely, whatever you want to call them? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's right, because Martin Goodman had multiple companies, but they would all be encapsulated under some brand of some kind. You know, in the 40s, it was Timely. We know about these of Atlas comics, but technically that starts in 1951 with his distribution company that would have the Atlas logo on Goodman's comics. So 1950, it's still technically kind of Timely, although it was a mix of smaller companies that he made for tax purposes at this time. But the 1940s Marvel, or timely had a large bullpen that stan actually managed and this was the real bullpen that he would kind of mythologize in the 60s where they were actually under salary under goodman and the story goes that goodman found a bunch of stock material in a closet at some point and laid off all his salaried employee staff artists in 1949 and so everyone was going freelance at that time from 1950 and on. And actually, he didn't contract people for a while using up the stock material. Definitely by 1950, it's just freelance artists. But what they were contracting, what he would have Lee do is contract artists and writers to basically start putting out material, chasing themes and genres. He'd say, look, romance is doing well, make 10 romance comics. Westerns are doing great, make 10 of those. And one of Bill's favorite guys, Joe Manili, did a Western called The Black Rider. What, what's your what's your impression of Joe's uh, line work, Bill? Because you're a cartoonist yourself. Tell me what you think about that. I think he was, without a doubt, one of the best, I don't want to say line artists, but he had a line that just spoke volumes. And he was able to illustrate a comic in such a way that even, I hazard to say, Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby would be envious. His faces were real faces. They weren't like cartoon or in any way 
played up. They were the real deal. Right. And it, and it wasn't necessarily that craggly look of Kirby, but it also wasn't like the smooth New York line either, right? It was like, right. it was something in between, yeah. It was something in between, yeah. I almost see a Milton Kniff uh, style in some respects in Manili. Right. And I also see a lot of the Alex Raymond kind of qualities too. So he was um he was every man's uh cartoonist, I think. It's a shame that he wound up falling on a subway track. Right. Back in what, nineteen fifty eight or so. Yeah. Interesting about these comics, you know, they were pumping out the romance and the westerns. They were fun stories, maybe not not to the same literary degree as the EC comics, probably not. But one thing that came out at this time was a superhero tryout, just to see if the genre would still work, and it didn't work, was Stan Lee and Russ Heath's Marvel Boy. And that came out in 1950, and Bill Everett took over in the second issue. Did you guys ever read any of those Marvel Boy stories? I did years later, and uh, I have to say, I, I really enjoyed them. They were fun stories. They were very science fiction-y. I don't know. They they seem to set up the Marvel Age, in my eyes. Yeah, in a way, in a way, yeah. Maybe um, like a pre Kirby or post Kirby, right? Because he was he wasn't there at that time, but he was kind of with Simon. But after Kirby in forty, but before him in sixty, they kind of had these this kind of interesting Stan Lee superhero with Russ Heath on in Marvel Boy, and not much happened with him. I mean, he came back in the What If in the seventies, and then became. Quasar. Yeah, then they used his quantum bats and Quasar, did some retconning. Right. And then he made some appearance in Agents of Atlas um, a little more recently. Yeah, they were fun. I mean, they, they were fun, but definitely not appropriate for 1950. People didn't really gobble that up as much as the other genres. Right, right. In, in fact, this would signal the waning of superheroes at the time and uh, right. people uh, honing in on more crime and horror comics. Yeah, and some examples which happened around that time was Marvel Mystery Comics, which, of course, was Marvel Comics, but then it turned into Marvel Mystery Comics. It changes into a monster book called Marvel Tales. The Submariner Comics becomes Best Love Comics, so it turns into a romance comics. It continues the numbering. Captain America turned into Captain America's Weird Tales. So this is just the trend. It was uh, basically goodbye superheroes, and looking at our comic book and movie climate now it's hard to believe that america gave up on superheroes for this period of time it's interesting it's an interesting transition to actually see the books and the covers and how they just changed and not only with marvel but all the other comic publishers as well exactly. because harvey you had black cat becoming every other genre like mystery tales and horror tales you had this going on throughout the industry i think at this point and that being said you're right uh, as far as other companies switching out into other genres at this time quality comics you know plastic man was their main guy in their police comics and in issue 103 yeah in 1950 issue 103 he gets replaced by crime detective ken shannon in this year and that's interesting, actually, to see such a jarring change. He still had his own comic, you know, and his guy, Jack Cole, was still kind of phoning it in a bit at this time. It wasn't like in his prime Jack Cole years. You know, he, I think he kind of lost interest and um, he started kind of looking toward other companies for work. But Police Comics was replaced with uh, Detective Ken Shannon and... Actually, what's really interesting is later on, although it's not in this year of 1950, later on, Ken Shannon, the crime comic, then starts turning into a horror comic. That seems to be like a theme in the early 50s. It starts with something. Oh, yeah. Then it goes to crime, and then crime turns into horror because the crime has violence. That works, so let's make it horror where it's even more violent and sell even more, right? And that's the trend. Well, and there was also the cowboy vibe. Yeah, right, with the westerns, sure. In between those. Right, that's, yeah, right. The, yeah, westerns, crime, to, and horror, yeah. Anything but superhero. Right, anything but superhero. And so another company, Lev Gleason, in a similar note, they had their Daredevil comics. In issue 69, I know you love that number, Bill, 69, it's my favorite number. Um, it, it's got the yin, it's got the yang. Yeah, sure. What did you? Think That's I right. Meant? It's Come a yin and yang. It's the the what TNC the shirt. It's TNC <laughs> shirt design. But in Daredevil comic sixty nine nineteen fifty, he is no longer 
the star character, and he's actually getting replaced by the little wise guys as the cartoon. And that's more like cartoon kid comedy. Do you, do you ever look at any of those issues? Well, you know, the the thing I think about is the Our Gang or Little Rascals comedies of that era. Yeah, right. Something like that, yes. They were the only reason why. And Little Rascals was actually a comic feature. So all this stuff was coming around from a cinematic angle or what was popular at the time from media. Uh That would, a few years later, you'd see Bob Hope, you'd see Jerry. Yeah, Jerry Lewis, which starts in 52. Yeah, right. Right. So you'd see all these comedians coming uh, into the fold. And becoming a big a big deal in comedy. Yeah, right, right. It's an interesting shift, right, where it's not about uh, boys in tights, but about funny boys, I guess. Funny strips, funny pages. Funny boys in tight situations. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, ladies! <What> <laughs> no. <laughs> but, <laughs> was that your Jerry Lewis? That's amazing. Yeah, that wow, Jerry well done. Lewis. Hello, ladies! Was... Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's but, that's actually very good, Bill. Thank you. That's thank actually you. very good. Um, now, another company um, that actually really flourished at this time, especially with superheroes not even, not really being popular and going toward, imagine a book that had humor, teenagers, romance, kind of cartoony, smooth, clean lines, nice conservative clean lines. A comic like that, that could combine a lot of those wanted things at that time into one would do really well and it did that was archie comics it was exploding at this point with that wholesome clean teen humor oh absolutely and actually they celebrated in 1950 you remember we talked about in the 1960 how superman had his first annual and that was like this big explosion well in 1950 10 years before archie did the same thing archie annual number one it was 116 pages it was a gigantic book and it essentially had some of the best of Archie up to that point, similar to what Superman Annual 1 did in 1960. They also had a new book that came out, kind of like how Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane had her own comic later on in 1950. There was a comic called Archie's Girls, Betty and Veronica, that comes out in 1950. And so Archie's doing great at this point. (laughs) What are contributors to its success in 1950, Bill? What were people looking for in Archie Comics? People wanted humor, but but not only that, Archie kept going with that whole trend. And then 20 years later, they uh, started the Archie Comics Digests, which were fantastic. And they reprinted old material in a digest format. It basically hinged off of all the things that happened back in 1950. Right. What were people looking for when they were reading an Archie comic in 1950? Is it similar to, let's say, watching 90210 now, or is it not? Or Happy Days. Happy Days. Happy Days. There you go. Yeah, because you have this hapless humor where nothing's going to change from one day to the next because you're a sophomore in high school. You know, so who the fuck cares? What's going to happen to you? But if you go a couple years later, then everything matters because you're part of, you know, the public. Right. So, you know, there you have it. Yeah, that's interesting. I like that um, comparison um, because Happy Days didn't have the some of the, the deeper tones that its predecessor movie had American Graffiti. It's the same gang every every week, and it's the same old Fonzie, and it's fun, wholesome situations. Yeah, I would say Archie's a lot like that. Ron Howard being like Archie is a funny connection, too. Well, and here's the thing. I always think of Ralph Mouth or Donnie Mose being more the Archie character, but... Now, who's that other guy, Ralph Mouth's friend uh, with the dark hair? Potsy. Uh, Potsy, there you go. Maybe he was like Jughead, huh? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, Potsy was Jughead. I I like that a lot. Anson Williams, by the way. What I will say is, what happened was they tried to pitch a series to ABC, which was basically Happy Days, and then George Lucas happened to be helping with that pilot, and then he said, you know what, this would be a great movie. So he pulled 
Ron Howard out of that, and he made American Graffiti. And then they went back and said, oh, this would make a great TV series. And they said, we already had this idea. And boom, you had Happy Days. So Right, that's cool. It's a weird kind of, you know, cycle that this happened in. Because most people think that Happy Days was a knockoff of American Graffiti when, in all honesty, it was the other way around. I like it. The circle comes full jerk, in a sense. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Completely full jerk. Thank you, Al. Right. Interesting. Um, Now, I remember as a kid reading those Archie Digests. I actually like going back to the old stories. I, I do like the 1950 stories. and. Maybe there's something comforting about a simple time, a simple, clean time like that for some people. And I think as a kid, I found it fun and the humor interesting. I like the cartoon style of the characters and how consistent it felt. And that had a smooth, clean line. And again, that seems to be a funny theme about 1950 or the 50s in general is this smooth, clean line, which maybe is what makes Atlas so interesting because it wasn't really so smooth, clean line obsessed. Now, another company that came out riding along the Old West theme that you were talking about, Bill, uh, Magazine Enterprises. That was Vin Sullivan's comic entrepreneurship. And Vin Sullivan, of course, helped start off the early DC Comics and decided to do his own thing. Uh, the first Ghost Rider issue, Ghost Rider number one starts in 1950, although the character came out the year before. But interesting, it kind of like a mixture of a costumed super character, but he was all very much a cowboy. And there were some nice Frazetta covers on some of those issues. I don't know, have you ever seen those? Oh, they're beautiful. And not only that, but the popular song of the day was Ghost Riders in the Sky. And that was by the Weavers originally. Then it was picked up by comics, of course, because who in comics would not miss a really great superhero called Ghost Rider? Right, right. Yeah. And then that character got bought up by Marvel. And then Marvel decided, thanks to Mark Frederick, in 1972, 73, to update the character. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, and then updated the character in a motorcycle or... Gary Friedrich, yeah. Gary, I'm sorry, Mike, sorry. Mm-hmm. Right, right, mm-hmm. that's yeah. okay. And uh, and then that became a whole nother deal because everybody knows Ghost Rider is one of Marvel's biggest uh, franchises. Well, you know, so Ghost Rider starts in 72. I know why you said Mike Friedrich, because it was Gary Friedrich and Mike Plug who started it. So you kind of combined the two names. Right. Marvel was pretty good at that. When a character would run out of trademark, I forgot the, I forget the number of years, maybe 12 years that a name's not used, they would pick up the name. They'd be pretty sly about grabbing the name. They did that with Captain Marvel. They did that with Daredevil. They did that with quite a few characters. The interesting thing about Ghost Rider is they ended up grabbing that name, and then later they incorporated the same character, the original Ghost Rider, as the Phantom Rider into Marvel. And they were even able to grab the actual character as well. That was interesting that Goodman always had an ear on getting other people's stuff, right? Getting other people's genres, getting other people's themes, but also getting their character names when the trademark ran out. I mean, he was always just really good at grabbing other people's stuff. And the idea that he got in a weird way was because the same company owned the Lone Ranger and Green Hornet, and they linked the two from genealogy. And so then Martin Goodman took the same cue and pulled it over to uh, the Ghost Rider franchise, I think. Yeah, and um, what's interesting is Dick Ayers did pencil some of the original Ghost Rider comics for Magazine Enterprises. And after the Comics Code killed off that company, or rather killed off that comic, or both, I forget. Yeah, Martin Goodman, when he wanted to use that character and reappropriate the name, he actually had Dick Ayers draw that comic 
as a feeling of continuity. And that was actually done for Marvel's Ghost Rider, which was issue one in 1967. Dick Ayers did the cover art to that. And that's different, right, than the Ghost Rider that Gary Friedrich and Mike Plug made in 1972. They still had the name, but it was actually Martin Goodman who grabbed that in 1967, just like he grabbed the Captain Marvel name in 1967. Isn't that interesting? And then, now, you were talking about Harvey Comics earlier. Yeah. But you know what came out, again, writing the Western theme, was Simon and Kirby. They were already three years deep into the Love Comics. But they also worked on a Western, Boys Ranch. That starts in 1950. Right. And what's interesting about Boys Ranch in 1950, one, there's some really beautiful double-page spreads with Kirby and the boys and the you know bears and old, old Western oh, yeah. things. But... It it's kind of continues off Kirby's boy teams that he started off in World War II. What were those comics? Boy Commandos. Right, exactly. And uh, the Newsboy Legion. Right. It completely fed into that. Yeah, so that feeds into that. And then I think when you read that, that the dynamic between the different characters in Boy's Ranch feels more sophisticated and it to my eyes a little more interesting actually than some of the boy commando stuff but i think kirby carries that vibe of this team bickering team into his x-men yeah. comics that he did with stan lee wouldn't you say i'd even go one step further and say it was totally the uh, human torch rivalry in fantastic Four. yeah right and then that carried on certainly into the x-men and avengers but i think a lot of those rivalries i think they came from kirby because kirby loved to draw that stuff and i'm not even sure if we can uh right give stan credit for that because uh it it really seemed to stem from kirby right the way they were drawn and the way they were plotted and their little arguments and the way someone would just get angry and tear their shirt off or do something to another team member or or pull the towel away and then flame on right but i will say this I do find, and even now I could look at an old Fantastic Four book and I can read Stan's dialogue, and I do enjoy reading his verbiage of those arguments. It is fun, actually, and very friendly friendly to me as a reader. Oh, yeah, and that's what made me... My favorite Marvel comic of all time is the, the Fantastic Four. Is it really? That's your favorite one? Oh, by far. By far. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, was as a kid, I loved Ben Grimm, the thing. And I still do to this mm. day. But I loved his jacking around with Johnny Storm. And I loved how he would always dress down Reed Richards. Mm-hmm. And I loved the subtext between he and Sue. I think he threw in his romance comics work into the Sue Storm, Submariner, Reed Richards kind of triangle. Oh, absolutely. You know, you kind of felt for Namor because uh, you knew he really liked this white chick, but yet he's a green dude. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying. He's a what dude? He's a what he's dude? He's a you green say? dude because he, he's like Atlantean, so he has green. But he was uh, pink skinned with dark hair. He almost, with pink skin with dark hair, he almost kind of looked like a Persian guy. Yeah, he did. He totally did. But uh, <laughs> but with wings on his ankles. Yeah. Which and less body hair. Most, less body most hair. Persian guys don't have wings on the ankles. <laughs> just the really cool ones. But I'm just saying. Right, right. But <laughs> right. They're like the unicorns. They're the unicorns of the bunch, from what I understand. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm Namor of Iran. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can say this, folks. I, I'm Persian, so it's fine. You know, no one's uh, no one's getting upset. But Bill was not allowed to say that, so he will not. No, it's all right. I give you permission. I I grant you permission. Please continue. Thank you. Riding along on the crutch of romance comics um, with Simon and Kirby. You know, we're riding the Simon and Kirby train at the moment. We talked about their westerns with Boys Ranch in 1950, but in 1947, of course, they started off the romance comics genre. Um, in Young Romance, and the love comics would essentially be put up by most publishers in almost a glut, generally fueled by the female readers, um, although a lot of guys would read that stuff too, by 1950. So remember, 1966, we talked about before, it's the superhero glut. But in 1950, a lot of people don't remember now, but 1950 was the romance comics glut. Everyone was pumping out romance comics. 
Everyone wanted that money that Simon and Kirby was making. They had a great contract with those comics, by the way. So they were making money hand over fist, and everyone wanted a piece of that. Oh, yeah. One comic company, St. John, a lot of people don't remember it, but they had some really nice romance comics done by Matt Baker, one of the first major black comic artists. And Matt Baker's stuff, have you ever looked at any of Matt Baker's artwork, Bill? Oh, it's, it's elegant. I love it. I think Matt Baker was, you don't need to know he was black to love uh, all his artwork. There's nothing that needs to set him apart the elegance that he put forth in his art. Right, because his art was just so good. Oh, yeah. The women that he would draw, they were just beautiful, elegant. He would capture so much femininity and um, and sexuality again in his figures. And they weren't pornographic. They were actually just sensual. They had a sensual... And they were smooth lines, by the way. Again, smooth... Really smooth lines, but curvaceous smooth lines, right? Uh, Or one of the early graphic novels he made with Arnold Drake in 1950 was kind of a romance, crime, you know, kind of mystery comic called It Rhymes With Lust. And it's called It Rhymes With Lust because the main character, Rust, was a female who had seduced people and the main character into losing his way and conning a town and and it was a true novel. It was a graphic novel book and beautifully illustrated by Matt Baker. And 1950 is a huge year for him because his romance work, it's beautiful. So I can look at his his work all day long. It, I can, I, not to read the story, although I do, but just to look at the panels. I mean, it's beautiful. Matt Baker is an early influence of mine. And uh, he, he was someone that you can't look away from his artwork. It's like you want to look further into it. Right. And he, I don't know, even to this day, he's one of the greats in my mind, and nobody has uh, really surpassed him. Right. And his Phantom Lady covers that he does. Oh, my God. I mean, hubba hubba, right? I mean, that stuff is beautiful beautiful stuff. His line work there, too. Impeccable. Uh, It's just wow. One of the final things we're going to talk about in 1950, you know, we've talked about westerns, we've talked about romance, crime, horror, some of the superhero stuff, you know, we talked about the fiefdoms in DC and all that, but funny animal cartoons, right? We haven't really gone much in that. So Dell, Dell Comics, through its western publishing, made Disney and Warner Brothers comics. And so they were having comics like Donald Duck and Daffy Duck, oddly enough, coming out. Well, Carl Barks was completely dominating this era mm-hmm. uh, as far as the Disney comics goes. Yeah. And even to this day, we're still having cartoons based on the wonderful comic stories of Carl Barks. Oh, yeah. And Carl was a Disney animator. He went into the comics angle uh, with Dell and then with Gold Key. That's where he really made his mark. But. His stories have saturated the uh, Disney animated scene since then as far as all the TV series from DuckTales from uh, 1988 onward. Oh, yeah. Right, right. It's true. He created Scrooge McDuck in 1947, The Beagle Boys, 1951, The Junior Woodchucks, 1951, Gyro Gearloose. Remember that? Giro Gearloose. Right. Gyro Giro. Gyro, Gearloose. Gyro, Gearloose. <laughs> yeah, that was in yeah. 1952. Flintheart Glamgold. <laughs> that was 1956. You know, he was a true 20th century comic artist. What was he called? The Good Duck Artist? Is that right? Yeah, the Good Duck Artist. Because they called him that because they weren't crediting artists, really, in those Dell comics, but people could tell when his comics were from him because they were just so so well done and he would have a lot more work put into it. You know, funny thing about him and Jack Leibowitz, who we talked about earlier, is that they were true 20th century people. You know, Jack Leibowitz was born in 1900 and he died in the year 2000. Wow. That's interesting to me because that's a true 20th century person. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Yeah. To span every year. Carl Barks was close to that. He was born in 1901, and he died in the year 2000. So that's spanning 99 years. I mean, these are true century 
century figures, Karl Barks and Jack Leibowitz. That's interesting, right? That these two people, among some others who had similar time frames, would truly encapsulate the 20th century the way they did. Yeah, with, within their own time frames. It is kind of amazing, right? That these are creatures of that century, purely, in every sense. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and that 1950 is right in the middle of that, right? And uh, right. And that's, I think, something interesting about 1950 and the 50s in general. Because if you look at 50s culture, and then you look at 60s, 70s, 80s, there's a vibe there, I feel, that connects these four decades. There's the, oh, like man. like Pee-wee's Playhouse, but then it starts referencing Howdy Doody stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you have in right. the 80s, you have the new Leave it to Beaver show, which is referencing the 1950s show. Like there is a culture exactly that went from 50s to 80s, even 90s would touch up on a lot of that stuff. Like, you'd look, look at, go to comic... And then back... Yeah, then. you'd go to comic conventions right. in the 90s, and you'd have a lot of these guys that were comic book greats from the 20th century still around. You'd have Will Eisner, and you'd have, you know, Kirby, and a lot of people in the 90s, kind of all there still, kind of knowing, like, wow, that, that party oh, yeah. is over, and it was good, and still able to look back and still mingle with people... Right, and then the year two thousand hits, and um, it changes. So nineteen fifty is interesting to me personally because it's almost like the start of a culture that you and I were kind of born into. That we were we were born right in the middle of this fifty to two thousand range, and we soaked it up as much as we could. No, absolutely. But the funny thing is, is I actually had dinner with Will Eisner, Jack Kirby, and Gil Kane all at the same time. Yeah, wow, that's it, a great it was fantastic, and they were they were such great gentlemen and such wonderful creators, and yet none of them really realized how important they were to the culture. Will Eisner kind of had an idea, but I don't think Kirby and Kane really realized it. I see, and that's interesting. And now, when you look at the early twentieth century, you know, you look at nineteen hundred to nineteen fifty. That's a different energy. It feels like it feels like, although they were very important, and I love reading comics from that era. But think about it: domestic lifestyle, TV dinners, you know, sitcoms. Okay, sitcoms, Mad Magazine, all that stuff. It's really from the fifties and on that a lot of our pop cultural references are really. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, our heads were so mired mired in this. Because, like, 1900, 1950, it's a different kind of humor, different kind of energy. It wasn't about, you know, TV dinners at home or fast food. You know, it wasn't like that, right? But then in 1950 to 2000, we had, this is pre-internet, but after World War II. Oh, yeah. It, it's like TV dinners, you know, let's go catch a movie. Yeah. You know, let's wear some x-ray specs. Oh, absolutely. You know, let's let uh, pop culture is really exploding. Oh, yeah. But without the internet to make it so cynical, but also with enough technology to make it fun, right? Yeah, it's that sci-fi kind of introduction to the whole thing, which became the superhero thing in the uh, Silver Age and into the Marvel Age. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I'm glad that we were actually able to take part. Me, at least, I, I took a nice drink of it toward the end of it. You dug right in the middle of it. Yeah. I feel real grateful that I was actually able to witness some of the tail end of that myself. I was born the same year that Spider-Man got his own series. So, 63. So, by the time I was 10, and I was actually handed a copy of Spider-Man number one, it was already kind of legendary and canon for comic book people. I honestly grew up with Marvel being kind of the catalyst for me in many ways, but you had the lackluster 70s, at least with DC, not so much with Marvel. A lot of people were looking back to the 60s in the 70s because the 70s were so uninspired. The 70s, that's interesting. You feel like the 70s were a little yeah. lackluster in that sense? Well, compared to the 60s, look at what you had like, yeah. come up. Yeah, I see. Yeah. 
Right. Interesting that you say that because it seems like the 70s were almost like the 30s all over again. Absolutely. Because you have like comics that are inspired by pulp. So you have like Tarzan comic books. You have Conan comic books. Doc Savage. You know, the, uh, yeah, Doc Savage, The Shadow comics, right? Yeah. So it's almost like a revisitation of a similar kind of darker mood. And, I, and I'm not sure what attributes to that. Maybe it was a combination of things. Maybe it's because Nixon won the 1968 presidency and that disappointed some people. Or maybe it's also because the hippie movement didn't end as well as they were expecting with disasters right. of Altamont and the Manson crew. The optimism seemed gone. There wasn't as much funding into NASA and they were funding more into domestic things. So... It's almost like our Nor- the North Star was kind of like a little shaky, and it felt like the 30s again. It was They were revisiting like the same kind of darker hues of human nature in the comics, and it wasn't as explosive with that optimism and uh, creativity that the 60s had. So you basically had people coming out of the Great Depression and needing some kind of solace or some kind of redemption, and... That's why a lot of your comics were born of that era, I think, Alex. Well, and you know, that brings us to the fact that we've had a huge shift this week as far as comics go in general because, I mean, let's face it, we're suffering the loss of Stan Lee. And love him, hate him, whatever, Stan Lee was a force in comics. We've pretty much wrapped up 1950 but that brings us to you know what guys our weekly rant rave or whatever the hell you want to call it alex shoot my weekly thing is i've been reading some reprints from frank cho's liberty meadows newspaper strips that he made in 2001 and i bring it up because we were talking earlier about the change in the century and century people and uh, his Liberty Meadows strip. Have you ever read it? No, I haven't. I've heard a lot about it. It's pretty good. This is before he kind of went all into the Amazonian, you know, kind of pinup stuff, but it was kind of, it was, it's a sweet newspaper strip about veterinarians and animal shelters. But what's interesting is the characters in it have a great imagination. This is basically a Sunday strip. And it wouldn't be a full page. It'd be like, you know, two rows of panels, and that that was a a color Sunday. But in it, they look back a lot into the 20th century, and they have little Flash Gordon spoofs, little Mighty Joe Young spoofs, King Kong Tarzan spoofs, and Prince Valiant spoofs in it. And it's a sweet comic. One, I do like the Frank Cho art, and I do like seeing his, his original stuff that got him more famous and successful later. But I do enjoy also seeing that it's the year 2001, and he was obviously looking back at the pop cultural achievements of the 20th century and celebrating it in his book that came out in 2001. And I feel like that makes me feel like I'm not alone in looking back at that century and realizing what an interesting ride it was. And I do enjoy reading comics that, that do that. And uh, I think that's my rave of the week. How about you, Bill? I'm going to go for the obvious, and I'm going to have to go to, well, Stan Lee. Because I find it ironic in a really sweet way that he and Steve Ditko went out in the same year. They were friends, but they were also nemesis. And, you know, as uh, Kirby went on to do uh, DC Comics and made the funky Flasherman character, which was a knockoff on Stan. Steve Ditko also did the same in the Mr. A comics. And I have to say, neither one of those guys would have been the heroes they have become without Stan Lee. I don't want to give Stan too much credit because he was notorious for doing that himself. But I love Stan, and you know this, Alex. Since I was 14, I've seen Stan every seven years of my life. And the last time I had a chance to talk to Stan, he had turned 90. And I said, I've seen you every seven years. And he goes, I look forward to seeing you in seven years. Well, we're two years 
almost one year shy of that. Honestly, I never thought Stan would renege on our date. So I have to say I'm really sad because Stan's gone. And I honestly thought the guy would live forever. And I love you, Stan. And, you know, you're the reason comics are fun to me. And you're the reason that uh, I'm still reading comics uh, 45 years later. So, Stan, I hope wherever you are, you're uh, happy because you deserve it, buddy. And that's it. That's it for me, Alex. That was a good one, Bill. That was heartfelt. I know what you're saying. I agree uh, to an extent. I do think that Stan probably would not have been as famous without Ditko and Kirby. So I, I do have to throw that out there. He wouldn't have. He wouldn't have. Uh, but other than that, I get what you're saying. I I look at his picture, I have a similar feeling. He was there for me as a kid as far as a benign figure that kind of cheerleaded me toward comics. And I was always excited to read him and still am. And that, that really germinates with me watching cartoons as a kid and hearing his voice um, about how exciting um, this next story was going to be. This brings us to the end sadly and what a great year 1950 a great year for us to reminisce and look back at the careers of so many comic greats and again we wish our condolences to the lee family and everybody who loves stan lee so alex this brings us to kind of a somber episode but on an upbeat note We'll be bringing you some fantastic commentary from the Dallas Fantasy Fair and so much more in the next couple weeks. So, Alex, for you, for me, Pete Coogan, thank you so much for being here this week. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me this week. It's always fun. I say aloha, and we'll see you next episode on the Comic Book Historian Podcast.